On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes. Today we're in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. The sermon title is Enjoy Your Wife, which is taken right out of some of the translations here in Ecclesiastes 9. And this is part 14 of our Meaningless Life study through the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, we'll start with two bucket analogies. When you die, people say you have kicked a proverbial bucket. And before you die, you're supposed to have a list of things that you're really excited about, looking forward to, fired up about, longing for, and that is your what list? Your bucket list. So the big idea is before you kick the bucket, you got to check everything off your bucket list. And that's exactly what we hit this week in Ecclesiastes. He's telling us, hey, you're going to kick the bucket. You better make sure to leave time and energy to pursue, enjoy, accomplish, experience the things that God puts on your bucket list. Let me ask you two questions. When do you think you'll kick the bucket? We don't know, right? I mean, we all think it's going to be mm, probably further off than it really is. Secondly, what do you have on your bucket list? Whether it's a formal and official, places you want to go, things you want to do, people you want to meet, or it's unofficial, just a, a number of hopes and wishes and, and dreams and longings in your heart and in your head. Well, these kinds of questions and considerations, they're nothing new. 3,000 years ago, the wisest man in the history of the world, second only to Jesus Christ, pondered these same questions. When are, when are we going to kick the bucket and what should be on our bucket list? And he starts in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, reminding us, you will kick the bucket. He says this, this too I carefully explored, even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially, clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. Here's what he says. It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. There is hope only for the living. As they say, and he quotes apparently an old proverb, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Everyone sins and everyone dies. The wage for sin, the consequence for sin, the penalty for sin is death. God is the living God. Sin is separating ourselves from the living God and the result is death. Everyone sins, everyone dies. And Solomon says, this is really frustrating. It's confusing. It's bewildering, befuddling. It, it's it's a great mystery. 
have you lost someone that you really love? When's the last time that you saw someone, knew someone who was in the death cycle and process? We, we tend to just enjoy people as they're alive, but as they, as they turn toward death, it's very frustrating. It's very confusing. It's very maddening. I just got an email this week regarding a, a man that I know and love, a very, very, very good man with a with a good, great wife and family. He's a successful businessman and a very generous man who loves Jesus and has a deep affection for people. When you're with this guy, you feel like you feel like he loves you with all of his heart. He's that kind of guy. And he's on his deathbed. And I was thinking about his wife, who is a joyful, lovely, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman. And she's going to lose her husband soon barring some sort of miracle. She's going to live alone in the house that they built together. She's going to drive alone in the car that they bought together. Solomon says it's, it's so maddening, it's so frustrating, it's so confusing that the same thing happens to everyone. And you would hope, you would think, at least in your weaker moments, that things would be better for the good guys and gals and that things would work out in their favor. And he says, no, that's, that's not the way it works. Saying the righteous guy who drives to church every week and the wicked guy who stole his car from the church parking lot for a drunk drive joyride both end up in the same place, dead. The good woman who tithes faithfully and gives beyond that to feed the poor and serve her co-workers. She suffers the same fate as the gal in the desk across from her who lied about her stealing from the company and got her fired from the job. The college student who has never had a drink or cheated on a test ends up with the same fate as their hungover roommate who skips classes and copies their lecture notes cheating on tests and exams. They both die. The guy who reads his Bible and prays every morning before work and his buddy who curses God as a hobby and makes fun of stupid Christians, they both die. When kids are little, they tend to be told that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. But the truth is, the worst thing, death, it happens to all people, the good people and the bad people. This all just seems plain wrong. That's what Solomon's saying. And what he says is, you know, we spend so much time thinking about, at least those of us who are religious, being a good person and not a bad person. The truth is, it's about being a living person and not a dead person. He says, even if you're a great person who lived a great life and did some great things, if you're dead, the bad person who lives a bad life is in better shape than you because at least they're still here. That's where he uses this analogy that a live dog is better than a dead lion. <clears throat> if you ask somebody, would you rather be a dog or a lion? Oh, a lion. A lion could totally take a dog. Even though they're a cat, they're a certain kind of cat. They're, our, they're the king of the cats. And as a result, they're, they're the one cat that can take the dogs. Now, in our day, we don't tend to think of dogs in a lowly position. I literally have seen people pushing dogs in a stroller like a baby. I've seen people carrying a dog in a front pack like a baby. I met somebody recently here in the great city of Phoenix that they're building a new home and they're 
they're a very elderly couple. And uh, I said, oh, well, tell me about the house. And they said, well, the house is done. Now they're working on the pool. I said, the pool? What do you guys need a pool for? I mean, they're, 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 they're not young people. And it's totally fine if you're old and like to get in the pool. But I just didn't think these people in the condition they were in, if they got in the pool, they'd be able to ever get out of the pool. Anyways, I asked them, so what's up with the pool? And they said, well, we're, we're, we're making a very nice pool for our dogs. Our dogs like the pool. And if you think about it, boy, oh boy, here they are. They're moving into a multi-million dollar home and uh, they're building a pool for their dogs and they have a door for their dogs and they have beds for their dogs and they pick up after their dogs and they tend to their dogs. And if you mm, came in from an alien planet, you would think that the dogs were in charge. You would think, yes, they have this um, you know, volunteer slave labor force called human beings that go to work all day to make money to fund their palatial estates and to... Uh, then come home and serve them by following them around and picking up after them. You would think that the dogs were in charge. We've got a dog. We like our dog. Nice dog. I'm not against dogs. But in that day, uh, dogs were considered very lowly. They were a dirty, nasty, unclean, mean animal. In my travel across various uh, countries like Turkey and Israel, there are wild dogs running all over the place. And these are just mean mongrels. These are skinny, fighting, bark, barking, biting dogs. They're, they're just nasty. If you grew up like I did in a real poor neighborhood and somebody just gets a real mean dog for the sole purpose of uh, sitting out front and barking at everybody and keeping the house safe, um, rarely gets fed, never gets any affection and just becomes a real mean, nasty mongrel. That's what they're talking about here. What they're saying though, what he's saying though, is that even such a lowly, dirty, nasty dog is better off uh, than a regal, powerful lion that is dead. That, that life is a real gift. And sometimes life is a gift that we give to the worst people and death comes for the best people. Now, we know this, right? We don't tend to think a lot about our death, but we want to extend our life. So we exercise, uh, we drink uh, filtered water, we eat organic food, we take our vitamins, and then we die filled with pure water, organic food, and vitamins. We die. And there's no way around it, and life is filled with tremendous uncertainty. And, you know, I'm drinking my coffee right now when I went to pull the half and half out of the fridge, put a little dollop in. On the back, there's an expiration date. Basically says on the milk and all of its byproducts, at this day, it ain't gonna be any good. It's gonna turn for the worse and then it's all gonna be over. Well, the truth is, every single one of us has an expiration date on the calendar and one day we're gonna take a turn for the worse and then it's all gonna be over and the truth is, we just don't know when that day is. We don't know. Now, this is all pretty somber, this is all pretty sad, this is all pretty serious. And what he's saying is, in light of all of this, if we're realistic, and sometimes we're just not realistic, we're distracted, we're diverted. We're busy with life and try not to think about things like this. When am I going to kick the bucket? How am I going to kick the bucket? What Solomon says, though, is that uh, everything is in the hands of God. That's exactly what he says, that... Uh, Everyone is, quote, in God's hands. Uh, what he's talking about here is uh, 
the rule of God. The rule of God. When you're a little kid, you sing that song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Well, that's the song that tells us that God rules the whole world. And when it, when it feels like life is out of control, it's really important not to just theologically believe, but emotionally cling to the fact that God is in control, so things are under control. When the worst day comes, the most important thing is to remember that everyone and everything is in God's hands. When life seems to be drifting off course, it's tempting for us to take matters into our own hands. Think of it like a ship where we don't like where it's going, so we run up on the deck and we grab the helm and we try to steer our life in a different direction than God is taking it. And we discover that his hands on that proverbial wheel are far more powerful than ours, that he may be having us go in a direction that we weren't anticipating or looking for. But ultimately, if that is the choice of his hands, that has to be accepted in our hearts. Otherwise, we're going to spend our life embittered against, angry at, frustrated by, accusing of God. And I'm telling you, that's no way to live. I know a lot of people who do. And when you think of things being in God's hands, the point here is not fatalism. Well, you know, nothing matters. It's all in God's control. That kind of hard, hyper-deterministic sovereignty that um, Calvinists who go too far and, and end up thinking like Muslims, those are the mistakes that they make. That God is in charge, but he's not necessarily in charge like a father who listens to and works with and considers their children. God is sovereign, but he's not sovereign like a math equation. He's not sovereign like a dictator. He's sovereign as a father. And so when it says that everything is in God's hands, it means that we are in God's hands. When it says that everyone is in God's hands, it means that we're in God's hands. And sometimes life feels like you've fallen, literally. Um, have you ever fallen off a ladder? You ever fallen off a roof when you were a kid? You ever fall out of your bunk bed? You ever been climbing a tree and fall out of the tree? You ever had a season in your life where the bottom dropped out? You lost your job, you lost your health, you lost your spouse. It felt like everything was solid and secure and then the bottom drops out and you're falling. God's hands are there to catch you. God's hands are there to catch you. That's what he's saying. Like a kid that falls out of the tree and dad catches him. Like a kid that falls off the top bunk and dad catches him. Like the kid who was climbing up on a ladder, slipped and fell. Dad catches him. I've had an interesting year. Let me tell you something. I promise you this. The Father's hands, they catch you. They just do. He's good that way. Yeah, it's scary for a bit while you're falling. You wonder, what's going to happen to me? And then you realize, everyone's in the Father's hands. 
And it's a good place to be. It's a safe place to be. It's the best place to be. It's the only place to be. What he says is, you're going to kick the bucket. And then he transitions and he says, life between now and then, it really matters. Because once you do kick the proverbial bucket, there's nothing more you can do, right? It's like a sporting event. Once the time is run off the clock, everybody walks off the field, it's over. You can't go out and do anymore. Ecclesiastes 9, 5 and 6. The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, is all long gone. He concludes by saying they no longer play a part in anything here on the earth. Life is busy, amen? It's really busy. Your student, you're busy with your studies and your relationships and your activities. If you're working, you're busy with your job. If you're married, you're busy with your relationship. If you're a parent, you're busy with your kids. If you're a grandparent, you're busy with maybe your spouse, your kids, and your grandkids. If you're involved in leadership in any ministry or church or serving, there's a lot of things that are happening and people that are hurting. You're busy. Add to that your home, your bills, your car breaks down, your health, your parents get sick, whatever the case may be, you're busy. Life is so busy that we end up making to-do lists. We've all got them. Maybe you jot them in a notebook or on a sticky tab, or maybe you've got an app on your phone, or you dump it all into your calendar. I don't know how you organize it, but it's amazing. We live in an age when there are all these tools to help us organize life because there's way more for us to do than we could ever possibly do. We're busy. And here's what he says. It probably doesn't really matter. Right? This is going to get dark and then it's going to get light. But if you died right now, so much of what you did, the hours, the days, the weeks, the months prior, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. It, it may seem like a big deal, but it, it probably isn't. I mean, if you get all your laundry done and do all your dishes and pay all your bills and catch up on your taxes and wash your car and vacuum it out and cut your grass and pull your weeds and make your bed and return all your emails and die, it doesn't really matter. Because the weeds will grow and the car will get dirty, and everything you work so hard for will come to naught. I think of it like a sandcastle on the beach. My kids like to go to the beach and make sandcastles. 
They all did when they were little. And what happens is you work really hard to build a sandcastle and then eventually what happens? The tide comes in, the sandcastle goes away, and it was all for naught. It was fun for a while, but it's not like a monument that's going to stand forever. You're a sandcastle. I'm a sandcastle. There we are, getting built. And then the tide rolls in. Death comes for us all, and we're remembered no more. Now, the point he's making is crucial, and it's going to get a little more joyful and hopeful here uh, shortly. But he wants us to emotionally have a heart funeral. Sit there for a minute. Think about it. Feel it. Where he's going to drive us is, don't let the mundane duties of life rob you of the joy of life. Don't let the pain of life rob you of the joy of life. Don't let the mystery of life rob you of the joy of life. Instead, understand that your bucket list probably is not the right bucket list, and that God has a different bucket list. And before you kick the bucket, he wants you to really be focused on checking the things off the list that he has for you. And disobedience to God is sin. You don't want to live in disobedience and defiance to God. So if he gives you a list of things to do, by grace, you should go ahead and pursue those things. Did you know that God has a bucket list for you? He does. He has a list of things that he wants you to go out and do and experience and enjoy. In fact, uh, here's what he says. You ready? Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10. Let me, let me back up and say that this is one of, if not my favorite sections of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. I have taught this section in premarital classes for around 20 years. I have shared this in counseling sessions for more than 20 years. I have preached this section on tour in 12 cities when my wife and I did uh, a marriage tour conference with our Real Marriage book. I have used this scripture at weddings I was officiating to throw a complete knuckleball to people who were just expecting to hear their 73rd wedding sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 and what love is. Give them something a little different. Go to Ecclesiastes 9. This is a verse that I have encouraged couples to type up, write up, put in a frame, a folder, a sticky tab on the bathroom window, memorize it, don't forget it, get to it. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10 is a word from dad to his son, to his daughter. Don't forget while you're alive to make sure to check these things off your bucket list. You ready? Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10. So go ahead. We're going to come back to that. Some of you have a view of God that he's like, no, no, no. Here's what he says. Ah, go ahead. So go ahead. Eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with a happy heart for God approves of this. 
Wear fine clothes and a splash of cologne or ladies' perfume. Live happily with the woman you love. Some translations say, enjoy your wife. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. Not exactly a Hallmark card, but pretty poignant. The wife God gives you is a reward for all your earthly toil. Whatever you do, do well. For when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. Hmm. Here, we get into the issue of holiness. Holiness is simply living like the Lord, having the character of Christ. That's what holiness is. And when it comes to holiness, Christians have really, well, messed this up. And when it comes to holiness, there really are three options. One is holiness by subtraction. Religious people, they prefer this path. Holiness by subtraction is, I deny myself worldly pleasure. I live a minimal, miserable, miserly life. I do not eat and drink. I do not laugh. I do not dress up. I do not spend money. I do not have fun because God is serious and I am serious and I am a sinner and I am a wretch and I am the worm of the earth and I deserve nothing and I need to show the Lord how contrite I am by punishing myself, by harming myself, by denying myself of any pleasure so that Lord, you would know how sorry I am and how serious I am. And God's a dad looking at his kids saying, will you knock it off already? I already forgave you. And I love you. And since your big brother Jesus already took the beating, you're insulting us both by beating yourself up. We don't need you to add to the cross. It's all been taken care of. You're not being religious. You're being ridiculous. I gave you a bike. Go ride it. I gave you an ice cream cone. Don't throw it at the wall and read Lamentations and deny yourself even the pleasure of a lick. You're a weird kid. Knock it off. Religious people are strange. God gives them something and they don't even enjoy it. God tells them to do something like eat and drink and have fun and they say, no, Lord, I cannot. Well, that's disobedience. That's defiance. If God says to have fun, you should have fun. If God says to eat, you should eat. If God says to get dressed up and blow some money on date night with your wife, then you should do that. Because if God tells you to do something, it's a holy thing. And just because you think it's unholy, well, you're not the standard. You're not the judge. You're not the Lord. Some people are holier than God. That's why they killed him. Number two. There's holiness by addition. Irreligious people, especially the rebellious kids of religious people, prefer this path. If you grew up in a home where your parents' view of the kingdom of God was basically an eternal root canal, God is watching. God sees and knows all. 
God is not happy with you. God is not pleased with you. You get this idea that God is like a prison ward and life is like a sentence to a cell and the warden is just peering in behind the bars waiting for you to say or do anything wrong so they can taser you. That's no fun. If you grew up in that kind of holiness by subtraction, rigid rule religion, if you grew up in that, you know what you do? You rebel. You rebel. Because what you've been taught is that sin and fun are synonymous, and your parents tell you no fun, no fun, no fun, and one day you're like, forget it. I'm going to go out and sin like crazy, and I'm going to make up for lost time because I am tired of living this painful, miserable, joyless, cheerless, miserly life. See, holiness by subtraction does not go far enough. Holiness by addition goes too far. These are the people who are like, well, you know, God's love, sleep with whoever you want, you know, don't just have a drink, have a lot of drinks. Don't just go out, you know, one night a week, go out seven nights a week, quit your job, man. Just go out and have fun and party and enjoy yourself. And I know I'm not using the lingo right. I'm 45. I've got a four-door vehicle and five kids and the mortgage and a dog and life insurance. So I'm not cool. I get that. I didn't skateboard to this discussion. I fully get it. But you know the point. Whatever the hip lingo on the streets with the kidlets is, that's what I'm talking about. Holiness by addition is, well, you know, the old religious people, they're not holy, they're not fun. We're holy, we're fun. God's holy, God's fun. God is love, God is tolerance, God is diversity. God's up in heaven right now, just so fired up about legalized marijuana. And, you know, he's just hanging out with everybody. That's what all the smoke is that you read about in Revelation. No, it's not. No, it's not. And you get these wars between these two groups, holiness by subtraction that doesn't go far enough, holiness by addition that goes too far. Three, there's holiness by redemption. Not holiness by subtraction, not holiness by addition, right? Holiness by subtraction, that's religious. Holiness by addition, that's rebellious. Holiness by redemption. Let me explain this to you. Holiness by redemption understands, and this is where Solomon is driving. The whole point that he's driving at repeatedly in the book is that life is to be enjoyed with God and that life cannot be enjoyed without God like it can be enjoyed with God. Here's a guy who... He has it all. We've talked about it. He's got a thousand women. A thousand. He's got a palace. He's got a staff that is tens, hundreds, we don't know, of thousands of people. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. The days that he didn't enjoy it with God, he didn't enjoy it. Life is to be enjoyed with God. That's where he's driving. Holiness by redemption is, Lord, what joys, what pleasures, what opportunities, what experiences have you given me and how can I enjoy them with you? 
So you can enjoy alcohol, but if you're drinking with God, you're not going to get drunk. You can enjoy the pleasures of sexual intimacy. And if you are living your life in relationship with God, you're not going to want to run off and do all kinds of other things with other people because that's not enjoying life with the Lord under the Lordship of the Lord who made it all to be enjoyed. You'll eat without being a glutton if you sit down and eat with the Lord. Right? You'll, you'll make money and spend money, but you won't be stealing money or uh, squandering money and loving money if your money is earned and spent with the Lord. That's what holiness by redemption is, that God is good and everything that God made is good and everything that God does is good and things can and should be enjoyed in a way that honors and recognizes and glorifies God. And when we do, we find them very satisfying and to God that is very glorifying. We're talking about here eating and drinking and lovemaking and Sabbath keeping as an act of worship receiving it as a gift from the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me enjoy this moment, this experience, this person, this joy, this passion, this pleasure. So you ready? Here's God's bucket list. You ready? Let me ask you this. If I came to you and I had a blank sheet of paper and I said, eh, write down one, two, you know, handfuls of things that you think God would put on your bucket list as important things that he wants you to accomplish before you die. My guess is you would not put this list together. I, I, I wouldn't have. Number one, he says, go ahead. I've got five kids. Five kids come up all the time and they ask me for various things. Dad, can I go with my friend? Go ahead. Dad, can I go to the game with their family? They got tickets to the college game. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, Dad, can I go get 10 bucks out of your wallet so that I can buy something at school? Oh, go ahead. Dad, can I stay up late because uh, it's World Series time and it's an extra inning game and I want to see the end? Ah, go ahead. These are all conversations in my house very recently, by the way. Uh, Dad, I know it's almost bedtime. Can I go jump in the pool and swim around for a while before I go to bed? Eh, go ahead. Recently was, hey, Dad, I know it's almost bedtime, but I really want some root beer. Eh, go ahead. I don't say go ahead to everything if my kids came up and said, can I discharge a firearm in the house? Mm, no, don't go ahead. Uh, Dad, we got these bottle rockets and we'd like to light them off in the car. Mm, no, don't, don't go ahead. So I'm not a permissive parent that says yes to everything, but I am a dad who tends to be a green light dad. You know, green light dad, red light dad, red light dad. Nope, stop. Nope, stop. Nope, stop. Green light dad is yeah, go, yeah, go, yeah, go, yeah, go. Moms and dads, we all got to have green lights and red lights and yellow lights. Yeah, no, mm, proceed with caution. Go slow. Let's check this out. But I tend to be a green light dad. I say yes way, way, way more than I say no. The kids learned this when they were little. Go ask dad. Dad's a green light dad. My thing is, I like my kids to ask me. And if they're asking me, it probably means that they're not going to go do something sinful because 
if you're asking your dad, it's probably in your heart that you want to do a good thing in a good way for a good reason. That's what I tend to think. So I figure if they're not sneaking around and they're just coming to talk to me about it, I'm going to check the heart motive. And as long as I'm invited in and involved with them, it's going to be a lot of go ahead, green light dad. Wow. Did you know that God is, he's got a red light for sure. There's things he says no to. <clears throat> he's got a yellow light. He says, mm, proceed slowly, be careful. Let's investigate this one step at a time together. But do you know that God's heart is a green light, Dad? He is. So he says, go ahead. Go ahead. Number two, eat your food with joy. Eat. <clears throat> you know, a lot of problems came into the world when people ate without God, Adam and Eve in the garden in particular. It's not a sin to eat, but it's a real problem to eat with Satan and demons and evildoers and false teachers and people with adulterous motives and con artists and gossips and busybodies. And there's certain people eating with is not particularly helpful. That's where 1 John says, don't bring heretics into your house. Corinthians says, if there's somebody who's just sexually out of control and not looking for any help, don't sit down and eat with them. <clears throat> Here he's saying, eat your food with joy. Man, one of my favorite things is dinner time at our house. We sit down as a family. We have a <clears throat> table, I think I've shared this earlier in Ecclesiastes, that my youngest daughter, my oldest daughter rather, she came up with a concept for us. So we had this kind of rugged, indestructible family table built. And we sit at it and we eat together. When it came time to put chairs around it, I decided, you know what, each one of the kids is going to be able to get their own chair and decorate it. So they all went to the secondhand stores and picked out a chair and they painted them. So my one daughter's looks like it's got lace all over it. My other daughter's is yellow like happy, joyful sunshine. And my son put a big sword on the back of his chair. And the kids just decorated their chairs and painted their chairs. And it's a mismatch, you know, hodgepodge of chairs at our table. But each one sort of is something that the kid contributed. And it kind of represents their personality. And I wanted to create an environment in which we sit down and, quote, eat our food with joy. Like it's it represents us. We don't. We don't sit around and eat dinner by the TV. We sit down and eat dinner together. We have really good discussions. Um, now that my kids are older, rather than sitting and lecturing them around the table as some sort of religious dad, we kind of mm, agree on a theme for the week. And we'll talk about it. What do you guys want the theme to be next week? And this week it's hope. Okay, each one of you kids find a Bible verse on hope this week. Bring it to the dinner table and you're going to share the verse and lead a discussion about whatever the theme is for the week. And so last night it was one of my sons says that um, the longings um, of the righteous bring hope. Um, and so we talked about that for a long time and had a really good discussion. Um, do we have righteous longings? Do we have a right to hope for certain things if they're unrighteous? We had a great discussion. Tonight, my other son will be up. We go in order from oldest to youngest. And you know what we do? We eat well. My wife is an amazing cook. Our daughter, our oldest daughter, she's an amazing cook. I mean, we're blessed. Going to a restaurant is usually a disappointment because it's usually not nearly as good as eating at home. 
And we go out to dinner some too. And I'm not against an occasional burger. But it's eat your food with joy. Mealtime is special time. Boy, if you're married, it's great to just sit down and eat a meal together and take your time and not be rushed. That's why date night's good. That's why getting time together is good. It's practicing for the kingdom of God where we all sit around the table of the Lord Jesus and, and we feast forever in his presence. And heaven and the kingdom is this huge party with our go-ahead dad and, and a lavish banquet. Eat your food with joy. God wants you to, to eat healthy, to eat well, to eat good, to eat to his glory, to eat to your joy, to eat with family, to eat with friends, to eat in celebration. Um, number three, drink your wine with a happy heart. What? What? You kids grew up in really conservative churches. They made you memorize verses. They never gave you that one, did they? Never put that one on the flannel graph. Well, kids, here's how you pour wine from the... Um, flask or bottle or whatever the case may be into the cup. And here's how you uh, swish the wine around so that its aromas open up and sniff it into your nose because that's the beginning of your palate. They, they never really taught you that, did they? Drink your wine with a happy heart. Immediately, some of you will say, drunkenness is a problem. Okay, if you have a problem with alcohol, don't drink it. Bible says don't get drunk, so don't even start. Bible says don't cause others to stumble. So if there's people that stumble and struggle with alcohol, don't drink around them for sure. You don't want to cause them any problems. You love them. Somebody said, oh, the government says you can't drink till you're 21. Okay, then don't. Obey the government. I mean, don't drink. Do obey the government. But if you're not sinning or breaking any laws, what he says is drink your wine with a happy heart. You know, my wife and I, we tend to commemorate and celebrate and and we do so sometimes with a really nice bottle of wine. My favorite, um, I'll just share it with you. Um, since you asked, you're welcome. It's a Silver Oak Cabernet. Years ago, I'd, ne I'd never I'd never, spent a lot of money on wine, but a friend gave us uh, Silver Oak and tried it. It was the most amazing Cabernet I've ever tried. It's just delightful. really like it. Another friend on another occasion gave us a bottle of something called an Opus One. I would never spend that kind of money on a bottle of wine. But if you're going to give it to me, I'm sure going to enjoy it. It was amazing. Enjoyed it with my wife. Save it for special occasions. The problem is when we drink alone, when we drink without the Lord, when we drink because we're sad, it's better to drink with the Lord. It's better to drink with people. It's better to drink in celebration of the Lord, not like some drunken New Year's Eve party, but sitting down with a glass of wine and having a conversation that includes the Lord and involves the Lord and enjoying people and enjoying life together and remembering that one day we'll be together in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And Isaiah says that we'll have the choicest of meats and the finest of wines. And it's going to be quite a good time. I'm telling you that when uh, when the menu gets handed to you at the wedding supper of the Lamb and the kingdom of God, your mind's going to explode because your palate is going to be happy. It's going to be awesome. Christians have had a weird relationship with alcohol, at least those in the more Methodist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, and Baptist traditions, not the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Catholics. They, they don't have the kind of hang-ups and issues. And no, it doesn't mean grape juice. And if you like grape juice, feel free to drink it. That's fine. But Solomon is talking about here, let's say after a long, hard day, and God has shown up and blessed you, and you and your spouse are just filled with joy for his provision 
and the kids go to bed and you decide we're going to sit by the fire, we're going to climb into the hot tub, we're going to sit in the tub and we're going to open a bottle of wine and we're going to have a glass and we're going to sit there together and we're going to celebrate the grace of God and, and sanctify that moment. Heck yeah. And I know some of you will say, I disagree with you, Pastor Mark. Well, then I pity your spouse because you're, you're not fun at all. You're no joy at all. You're a, you're, you're, a, you're a person who's more conservative than God and you need to scoot over. Number four, get dressed up. That's what he says. Some of your translations will say, uh, wear white. You know, there are times that we need to get dressed up and go out and do all these things together. Go ahead, get dressed up, go out, have a nice dinner with your spouse or maybe your friends or maybe your family. When's the last time you got dressed up? Not just for work, but just to go celebrate and enjoy life. When he says to wear white, some of your translations will include that. God's people wore white in the Bible to show that they were fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. So when they would come to the temple, they would walk long distances sometimes to worship God. And at the base of the temple, they would go through ceremonial, ritual, bathing and cleansing, and then they would put on white, clean. And they would sing the Psalms of Ascent as they would walk up the steps to the temple where they would come into the presence of God and to worship the goodness and the glory of God. And they'd be wearing white. And it shows that this is the God who forgives me. This is the God who, though my sins be red as scarlet, he washes them white as snow. This is why God's people throughout the Bible are wearing white. This is why God's people in Revelation are said to be like a bride on her wedding day wearing white, pure, clean. It means that in Christ you're forgiven. It's something called the doctrine of expiation, that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he not only forgives you, he cleanses you. Some of you don't know this. When a woman is assaulted, she's abused. One of the first things she does is she goes to take a shower. Why? She's trying to get clean. She feels like she's been made dirty and defiled. Well, that longing is ultimately fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He cleanses us from the inside out. If we confess our sins to one another, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Jesus' best friend John says. Some of you women hearing this will wonder, do I have any right to wear white on my wedding day? I have done things that are sinful, and as a result, I feel unclean, unworthy. I feel dirty. I feel defiled. The answer is, if you belong to Jesus, you get to wear white. Because in Christ, you are clean. In Christ, you are righteous. In Christ, you are not dirty or defiled. You are pure and you are cleansed and you are made new. You are seen in the same righteousness as Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, he does not see what you have done. He sees what Christ has done. That's what he sees. He doesn't hold your past against you because he nailed it to the cross of Christ. 
And when Christ died, your past died. And when Christ died, the record of your wrongs was erased in the sight of God. And he no longer sees you through what you have done. He sees you through what Christ has done. And and for you men, you feel dirty, you feel defiled, you feel disgusting. Let me tell you this. I want you, next time you put on white socks or you wear a white shirt, to remind yourself, in Christ, I am clean. I am clean. And so when God's people get dressed up, it's always a good idea. And I don't want to be a legalist or worried about it. But it is interesting. If you're going out to have a good time, let's say you're going out with your friends, you're going out with your spouse, you're going to go out to some social event or activity. It's not a bad idea to just remind yourself, in Christ I'm clean and I need to go have fun, but it needs to be clean fun that glorifies and honors Christ. It's not a bad idea for a guy who's partied in the wrong way in the past to put on a white shirt or tuck a white handkerchief in his pocket just to remind himself, I belong to Christ now and he sees me as clean and I want to go have some good clean fun with him. Number five, put on cologne or perfume. What what they're saying is some of the translations will say never let uh, the anointing of oil, um, you know, be removed from your head. What he's talking about here is, you know, when we're going out, First date, you do this, right? You get all dressed up, you put on cologne, perfume, you go out for dinner. um, And then sometimes you've been married for a while and it's just, you know, call dominoes and lay around in your sweats all day and, and smell like an outhouse. It's not the same as when you first got together. What he's saying is kind of never stop living your life, never stop enjoying your life, never stop celebrating your life. And if you're married, make sure that the first date is not the only date that really was a great date. And make sure that the wedding day is not the only day that was a real memorable day. Keep adding to them. Here's his last point. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your wife. Now, if you're single, this means uh, get a spouse and then enjoy your wife. If you're a guy who's single, this is something to aspire to. Marriage is for men. It's not for boys. And a boy who marries is not a man. He's just a boy with a man-sized problem because he's not ready for his responsibilities. He says here, I'll read it again, that the wife God gives you is a reward. You single men may not understand this. You newly married men may not yet understand this. You men that have been with your wife and the Lord Jesus together, for a long season, you in your heart of hearts, you know this. I hope you've not forgotten this. Your wife is a gift from the Lord. Your wife is a gift from the Lord. She is. God took one of his daughters and he entrusted her 
and her life and her children and her grandchildren to you. Men, I want that weight to rest heavily and heartily on your shoulders. I want you to feel it. It's an honor, but with every honor, there's a burden of responsibility. Enjoy your wife. Here's what he's saying. God is good. And one day you're going to kick the bucket. And on your bucket list, he wants you to have some joyful, fun memories with your spouse. Right? I mean, this sounds like vacation. This sounds like weekend away together. This sounds like honeymoon. This sounds like date night. Go ahead. Get dressed up. Put on cologne, perfume. Go out. Eat some awesome food. Drink a good glass of wine and enjoy your spouse. Wow. Who would have thought God would have put that on the bucket list? That's awesome. See, religious neatniks, they don't understand this. Religious neatniks are the great, great, great grandkids of the religious nitpicks who argued with Jesus and killed him. You know that the religious people killed Jesus because he wasn't holy enough? If you're more holy than God, you really need to reassess your definition and criteria for holiness. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew eleven nineteen. The Son of Man, that's himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus says, don't let the religious people rob you of all the gifts that God has given you. Don't let them tell you that what God has made clean is unclean, that what God says is permissible is impermissible, that what God commands you to do is something that you're forbidden from doing. That's crazy talk. We're not going to die and give an account to the religious um, establishment that sits there with their you know, furrowed brows and lists of expectations. We're going to stand before a loving father who cares about his sons and his daughters, and he tells them the same thing that I would tell one of my kids when they get married. Hey, kids, you got cars to wash and bills to pay and dishes to do and life to live and, you know, kids' noses to wipe and weeds to pull. Uh, make sure you get dressed up and smell good and go out and eat food and laugh and hang out and make love and sit in the tub and tell stories about why you still want to be together because life moves fast. Everything and everyone gets in the way. Move up to the top of your list, some fun, some joy, some memories. And oh, by the way, son or daughter, don't forget that sinning will ruin everything. And so invite the Lord into it all and enjoy it all according to the glory and the goodness of the word of God. Man, for sure, that's what I'm telling my kids. And I'm glad that God's a green light dad who's got a father's heart and he looks at his kids and he says, you're going to die. And all the stuff you're doing probably doesn't matter that much. You know what? On your deathbed, you're going to be remembering days where you got dressed up, hung out with a person you love, had a great meal, a good glass of wine, laughed together and celebrated God's goodness and grace and glory in your life. You're not going to be laying on your deathbed saying, I did it. I finished all the laundry. I did it. I pulled all the weeds in the yard. 
I did it. I got all the action figures and half-eaten Tootsie Pops and dog hair out of the SUV. Not going to happen. Hmm. Enjoy your wife. Men? Do you enjoy your wife? God does not want you to just put food on the table for his daughter. He wants you to enjoy her. Do you enjoy your wife? And what he's saying is, you're going to die sooner than you think. And this is a big priority. I'm going to close with a couple stories. They're recent from my life. Let me just brag on my wife for a minute. After this, I'm going to go enjoy her. You know, one of the great gifts of this last season of my life where I've gotten a lot of my time back, I get to spend it with my wife. Somebody asked me recently, said, you know, I'm teaching and writing and putting out podcasts and blogs and building a ministry and serving people privately and trying to figure out what the future likes and working on the transition with my family and, and we're in a big transition season. Somebody asked me, more than one person's asked me, so you and Grace are together all the time, right? Yeah. Aren't you guys ready to kill each other? No. Actually, I, I never want to be as busy as I was because... I love this time with her. The kids are in school during the day, which means we can go out to breakfast. We can go for a walk. We can go to lunch. If she's running errands, I can jump in the car and follow her around. I like that. It means that if something happens, we can just stop and pray together. It means we can process and make decisions and dialogue things together. I really, truly, deeply enjoy my wife. There are seasons in our marriage where bitterness or busyness crept in and started to choke that out. I pray that you wouldn't let that happen. We love each other. We're together a lot. We enjoy one another. And we work hard to make memories. And yeah, that means sometimes I blow a wad of cash. I'm just going to say it. Send me the hate mail to markdriscolldoesn'tcare at whatever.com. I, I, I think it's totally fine sometimes. Go out to a nice restaurant, have a nice meal, and blow a wad of cash. Go to a nice place for a vacation. And some of you are struggling and you can't afford it, and I get that. I mean, I remember being flat broke and date nights for us were, you know, somebody gives us a gift card to the Cheesecake Factory for my birthday. And so finally we get to go out to dinner. We've been all over the spectrum. But if you've got the money or you can save the money, it's good to go do something fun, something beautiful, something enjoyable, something wonderful together. Because you're going to die. And they're going to die. And then you can't do that stuff here anymore. Life on the earth is over. You're going to go into the kingdom of God, but, but this is your one shot to enjoy life on the earth with your spouse. Close with two stories. 
Which one first? I'll tell you the Macy story first. Uh, it was recently my 12-year-old daughter's birthday. She turned 12. Um, she's cute, blonde, sweet, happy, joyful, wonderful, adorable girl. She's just, she's really easy to love. She's a very joyful spirit. Uh, some years ago, all her brothers were getting trophies and her sisters running track and getting trophies. And she's not an athlete, so she didn't get trophies. And so she, um, she was a little bummed one day and she said, Daddy, I don't have any trophies. And so I made her a huge trophy, the biggest trophy in the whole house. And I, it was a big pink trophy and I called it the Sunshine Award. And I awarded it to her for being sunshine in my life. Um, and I told her, I said, some people have gifts and you're one of those people who is a gift. I really love this little girl and enjoy her and consider it a high honor to be her dad. And so she turned 12 and she's a young woman. And so I bought her a purity ring and wanted to give it to her as a gift for me so that she knows how much I love her and that when she's at school or she's with her friends and her daddy's not there, she could look at her finger and a loving, generous gift from her dad is there to remind her of my affection for her. So... Um, went into Macy's and picked it up and was going to give it to her that night. And as I'm walking out of the door to go jump in my Jeep and head home, walking across the parking lot, very slowly, shuffle, 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 shuffled feet, a really old couple. We're talking, their wrinkles have wrinkles. We're talking old couple. And, uh, they're smiling and they're holding hands. And it was such a beautiful picture. And all week I'd been meditating on Ecclesiastes 9. And I thought, oh, that's what it looks like. Because see, at this point in the story, Solomon had a beautiful, wonderful wife. As a young man, he wrote Song of Solomon with her. And as a dirty old man, she's gone and he's got a thousand women, but he doesn't have one love. He didn't get old with the wife of his youth. So he laments that and he talks about that in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. That was foolish. Wisdom is enjoy the spouse, the wife of your youth. It's the Ecclesiastes 9 stuff. Well, walking across the parking lot was this embodiment, at least visually, of what Ecclesiastes 9 is talking about. An old couple smiling, shuffling along, they're going to die before too long, but they're going to make sure that they're holding hands right up to the very end. I just love that. So I stood there and watched them walk across the parking lot, and it took a while. And I decided I was going to wait by the door so that when they came to the door, I could open it for them because I didn't want to have them not be able to hold hands. I wanted them to keep holding hands as long as they could, and I knew if they had to open the door that they wouldn't be able to hold hands so I opened the door as they came and I said uh, with a big smile, I was just really encouraged to see their joy. I said, uh, how long have you kids been together? And she piped right up. She was, she was, you could tell she was pretty feisty. She said, we've been together more than 50 years. And she smiled and she pumped her other hand in the air. She's holding hands with her husband in one hand. In the other hand, she pumped in the air like a fist, like a celebration. We've been together more than 50 years. And I said, well, you two are sure cute. I love seeing 
a couple that's been together that long that still is smiling and holding hands and walking together. And uh, they both smiled and she looked at me and she said, that's true, we love each other. We've been together more than 50 years and we still like holding hands. And she asked me, she says, and do you know what the secret is? I said, no ma'am. And I swear, here's what she said. She said, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. They both smiled. I opened the door and they walked in and they shuffled down the aisle of Macy's holding hands. That's what the father wants for his sons and daughters. Second story, I had breakfast very recently <clears throat> with a man who's in his 70s. And if I've got the numbers right, at 14, he met a gal that just for him was like the center of the universe. Everything orbited around her. And there was just a gravity about her that just drew him, pulled him in. He was a nervous, gangly, awkward 14-year-old kid. And he sees this 14-year-old girl. And he finally got up the nerve to talk to her. Well, they ended up getting married when they were 24. And they have been married now for 51 years. <clears throat> so they've been married for 51 years, and they've been together then for uh, 61 years. So I was having breakfast here in Phoenix <clears throat> with this 75-year-old uh, man. And he said, uh, he said, I have a harpoon in my heart. That was his haunting imagery. He said, uh, a few months ago, my wife got dementia. And she remembers me and she knows me, not like Alzheimer's sometimes. But she's not safe to be left on her own. She wanders off, she gets forgetful. And he said, uh, I tried as long and as hard as I could, but I couldn't rightly care for her anymore and she was not safe because of her dementia. Said, so I had to check her into a full-time care facility. Nice place, he adores this woman. He showed me her photo on his phone while he was crying. He's like, that's my wife. And uh, he goes to visit her I think pretty much every day. And when it's time to go, they have to distract her because she doesn't want him to go. Right? I mean, they've been together <clears throat> 64 years. At this point, they're one person, just like the Bible says we should be with our spouse. And, uh, they have to distract her because she wants to go home. So every time he leaves, he's just emotionally destroyed. I'm crying just thinking about it. So they distract her and he sneaks off. And then she comes out to the courtyard. I guess there's a wrought iron fence around the care facility. 
And uh, as he drives away, he looks in his rearview mirror and all he sees is the wrought iron fence. And through the top of the wrought iron fence is her hand. And it's waving goodbye. And he cries all the way home. Because she's alone and he's alone. And they can't go do the things that they used to do. And that day's coming for you. And that day's coming for me. And before that day comes, we need to obey our green light dad and have some fun with our spouse. Thanks.